If your food media diet is fueled by HRN, become a monthly donor today. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. It's Tuesday, July 27th, 2021, and we're talking again about Craft Malt. It's been our summer of Craft Malt, thanks to uh, Jesse Bussard, the executive director of the Craft Maltsters Guild. So um, we're all learning a lot more about, about malt, and I still think it's the most exciting thing happening in craft beer. So we're going to go through our guests, and they're going to briefly introduce themselves. Let's start with Eric. Hi, I'm Eric Younggren. I'm the Vice President of Sales and Marketing at Skagit Valley Malting in beautiful Burlington, Washington. Heck yeah. And Brent? Uh, Brent Manning, founder of Riverbend Malt House and uh, current president of the Craft Maltsters Guild. And, uh, I'm uh, here in Asheville, North Carolina. We got some royalty. Thank you. And, Je- <laughs> and Jesse? Hey there. Yeah, this is Jesse Bussard, uh, executive director of the Craft Monsters Guild, and I'm ca- calling in from Bozeman, Montana. And Vince? Hey, I'm Vince Tercy, uh, co-founder and uh, head brewer at Dissolver in Asheville, North Carolina. Great. So let's start with Jesse. So um, it's been the summer of Craft Malt. This is our third show that we've done with Craft Monsters. And um, you wanted to talk about the South by Northwest project. Will you give us a little introduction to that? Sure, though I'm not quite sure I'm the best person to give the intro on it. Uh, I would. This is a project, though, that uh, two maltsters put together. So Brent Manning um, from Riverbend Malt House down in Asheville, North Carolina, and then Eric Youngren from uh, Skagit Valley Malting Company. Uh, they decided that they, you know, wanted to basically swap malts from their regions and malt them in their respective malt houses, uh, and then, you know, brew, have brewers and distillers make, uh, beverages with them and kind of, you know, kind of see what the, the difference in terroir from different regions and the difference, you know, in the, um, flavor impacts from different kilning and, uh, process methods and malting and how that would affect the final products. Well, that's a pretty great start. Um, let's start. Who's next? Brent, you want to tell us a little more about the project just to give us a yeah, more info? absolutely. So, yeah, this is a, a, actually, I think our sales director, uh, Matt Thompson, came up with this idea of kind of, you know, what, what would it be like to, to swap barley from across the country? Um, so we put forth a uh, variety called Violetta from one of our growers, uh, Bay's Best, out in Heathville, Virginia. So um, they're right in the Chesapeake Bay watershed there. And uh, just had a beautiful crop from 2020. And uh, we sent a ton out to uh, the good folks at Skagit to um, play around with. And they sent us a variety called Talisman. Uh, I'll let Eric kind of give a little backstory on Talisman. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, Matt and I had, uh, had a long history together out here in the Northwest. He was a formerly the sales director at a, a brewery called Elysian. And I was his uh, brand manager at one time at a 
a beer wholesaler out here. So I've known Matt for a long time. And when I came over to Skagit Valley Malting, he was the basically the only person I knew in the malt business. So um, I gave him a call and we talked about uh, trying to figure out a collab because we didn't think that anybody in the malt world had done a collaboration before. Um, so we kind of talked through it and got to the point that we both grew winter barley varietals where the Violetta and the Talisman comes in. So Talisman for us is has some Maris Otter um, parentage and it's grown by our farmers, uh, one of our three farmer partners in the Skagit Valley, the Knutson family, they're primarily uh, potato farmers. And uh, they grow that winter barley varietal primarily for us, uh, although it does rotate a little bit around, but that crop was grown by them. So um, we decided that those were two great varieties that we could exchange raw barley and then send them to our respective malt houses and apply our malting processes to them, which are uh, very different. Uh, Brent, I think on your guys' pilot or smaller system, you're, you're using a salad in box and doing primarily floor malting. And then, you know, we have a different way of malting. We do everything in one vessel. Um, so, you know, there's going to be some malt house differences and, you know, some barley differences and some terroir differences. But I think the whole idea behind it from my perspective, and I think with talking through it with Matt, was that, you know, we were just trying to forward the conversation about barley and flavor and its impacts in beer, which I don't think is talked about enough. So that's kind of what was the impetus behind all of that. You know, what's interesting is I haven't heard of a malt collaboration either. So you're actually shipping the the barley uh, to the other malt house? Yeah, yeah so exactly. You both filled up some totes and shipped them across the country because, you know, why not? <laughs> yeah. So um, what, one uh, interesting thing just to sort of document. So when we when we talk about winter barley, um, you know, for us in the south, uh, the growing season actually begins in October and uh, the grain isn't harvested until June. Um, and when we talk about spring barley, that's that's typically more what goes in the ground out in the in the western U.S., um, and that spring barley grows from May to August. What does what the winter uh, schedule look like for you guys in the, in the Pacific Northwest? Yeah, good good point, Brent. Uh, it's a little bit different, surprisingly. Like we're in kind of uh, in the West out here. Uh, there's two distinct growing regions. There's the east side of the Cascades and the west side of the Cascades. We're on the west side. So we're more of a, merit, a marine maritime climate. We have you know, kind of colder temperatures. It's overcast a lot more. Uh, we always liken it to like the growing region of Scotland. Um, so our winter barley varietals are basically planted about the same time, October, but uh, they only get harvested about three to four weeks ahead of spring barley. So we actually just pulled the talisman out of the ground last week and we're expecting the rest of our harvest to come rolling in here in the next two to three weeks. So they only get a little bit of a jump, but from our par our farmer's perspective, they like that two to three week window to work the ground for their next rotation crop. Um, it gives them just a little bit of a head start. So they're uh, they're very happy to to rotate that in, uh, especially the Knutsons with their potatoes. They, they seem to really like that winter barley varietal as part of their rotation. Yeah. Hey, let's just jump ahead to Vince. Vince, uh, at Dissolver in Asheville, how did you get involved in this? 
so I've been a huge fan of Riverbend for a while. I've known Brent for like what, like six years or something like that, Brent? Yeah, that sounds right. Um, so I was in, I was working at Burial when I moved to town, uh, I, something like six years ago. And uh, Riverbend is a local monster. And we had a little bit of that up in Massachusetts where I came from, um, brewing in Boston. But Riverbend was doing some really cool stuff with different varietals. And we were able to pull much different character than I've really come across in any other craft maltster um, at the time. And uh, still, their wheat is like, I can pick that out in a beer. Um, so it was really cool to be able to uh, leverage local. And so as Riverbend has grown, uh, we I've always kind of tried to use them as whenever I can. And now Dissolver, all of our base malt, is riverbend based and it's great because it means that uh all of the base malt that we're using is coming from within 500 miles of our brewery because we're like 10 miles away from riverbend wow and do you, do you feel that 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 helps ensure the character of your beer oh 100 percent. like without a doubt i think that i don't know about taiwan's sense of place um, but it does provide a specific character to our beer and specifically for our lager program where, uh, we really let the Pilsner malt shine. And for some of our more base beers, like an ESB or something like that, um, Riverbend's portfolio is big enough where we can totally use a bunch of different malts and still keep that. Yeah. It's all Riverbend based malt and it provides a different character. Like their Pilsner is, you can tell the difference between their, um, Pale Pilsner, their six row, and then something like Canadian Pills or Vireman Pills or even like the Vireman Floor Malted. Um, Riverbend just has this really cool, well-rounded, floral, grassy, herbal, uh, and yet still pronounced malt character. It's it's great. That's great. Hey, let, let's do some backstory. So, Brent, um, I think you, you guys have been open at Riverbend, what, for over 10 years now? Heading that way, yeah. So uh, November of this year will be the the tenth anniversary of our first batch, and uh, so it, it it it's been a minute. Uh, when, when we started, we were uh, working with about fifteen hundred, two thousand pound batches in a two thousand square foot space, just me and Brian Simpson, and, uh, and Malthouse two point was ten thousand square feet, and now Malthouse three that we've been in since. 2018 is uh over 70,000 square feet so it's uh it's, it's been quite a ride how did you get into it um you, you know when brian and i uh we were both environmental consultants uh once upon a time early 2000s and uh when the housing market collapsed we, we kind of went looking for encore careers and uh the, the well-worn joke I always make is that we thought Asheville had enough breweries when there was like 12. And so we didn't, <laughs> want, to be, we didn't, we didn't want to be the 13th brewery, but we thought, what can we do that's sustainably focused that can, you know, be a part of this movement? Uh, I was a home brewer at the time and, you know, we quickly found out hops didn't make any sense, but um, uh, NC State and others are working on that for the Southeast. But small grains uh, do have a place in the Southeast. And um, we were, you know, interfaced with Ag Extension. They, they helped us find farmers, find uh, good quality barley to work with. And uh, we've been working with six row and two row barley uh, for uh, for this period, along with uh, 
heirloom rye and uh, a couple of varieties of oats and corn, all sorts of fun stuff. So what impact did, did you have on, on the farmers in your region? And when did you start noticing that, I mean, did, did other farmers start planting certain varietals because of what you were doing? Um, yeah, so I, I like to think that we're a second or maybe a third paycheck for, for our growers, you know, much, much like, uh, you know, the folks at Skagit, you, you know, there, there's a rotational aspect to what, when a farmer lays out how they uh, run their farm, where small grains can be a, a good, you know, they can get nutrients back into the soil, they can do a whole host of things regarding uh, disease cycles. Um, and so, you know, there's that benefit, and then there's also the obvious financial benefit of, uh, you know, we pay premium prices um, because we're asking for premium quality grains that meet a whole host of really strict specifications. So it, it's, um, you know, farmers, uh, you know, did did begin contacting us once we kind of splashed onto the news a little bit and word got around. And so that, that's been really gratifying as we you know, we have a network of growers, seed cleaners, and trucking companies now that really form a, a, a value chain that, that frankly didn't exist when we started. That's really cool, man. You've definitely made a difference. Um, what was one of the first uh, beers of note that your malt was in, if you can remember? Uh, probably one of the, the biggest early ones was... Um, uh, when New Belgium came calling, uh, they made a beer called Rye PA that fe- uh, featured our Carolina rye. And I think that was one of the first, if not the first, beers to sort of call out a craft malt houses and ingredients on a nationwide scale. And so that was super gratifying. And, um, you know, it, it was just, we obviously saw a, a ton of positive publicity around that beer. Uh, and so that one, yeah, 2013, early 2014, and uh, that really helped kind of springboard us into um, the next 2.0 malt house. Well, that's a great intro. Um, hey, Eric, so for you guys, t- tell us a little bit more your your background. I mean, I know you're a, a solid craft beer industry person. Yeah, well, the, uh, weirdly enough, both of our malt houses have been around about the same time. We're in our 10th year as well. You know, in my conversations with Brent and Matt, we, you know, I think we're roughly about the same size. Um, we, you know, we were born from the idea that we needed to close the agroeconomic loop in the Skagit Valley because um, much to everyone's surprise, the farmers were there, were growing barley in their normal crop rotation and were selling it for feed or just basically turning it under. Um, there's not a lot of uh, livestock uh, in the Skagit Valley. So finding feed markets, it can be challenging. Um, so our founder and a guy named, uh, well, it's from the Bread Lab, Dr. Steve Jones, um, were neighbors. And Steve Jones was, you know, developing uh, or breeding wheat in the Skagit Valley for Washington State University. And our founder, Wayne, was uh, was hired by the Port of Skagit as a business development person. And they uh, just talked about the need for a malt house um, to close the acro- uh, ag- economic agroeconomic loop, if I can speak that out. Uh, so that's how it kind of started. Um, and then ours, 
you know, the way our company kind of developed is that we didn't have anybody that was classically trained in malt production, but we had a lot of smart people that were engineers and they created a system of malting that um, basically nobody else really does. Uh, we don't, nobody really does all the steps of malting in one vessel and we custom make all of our equipment on site. So that's kind of something that we do a little different, but I think, you know, from Brent's perspective and our perspective, you know, our malt houses serve the same purpose in our region. And that's, you know, basically giving back to the farmers and, you know, helping support a healthy crop rotation and giving them some economic benefit from doing the right thing for the land, which I think is a, is of huge importance to us for sure. And then Eric, in, in your little malt house history, can, can you think of uh, one or two early beers that were made with those malts? Yeah, I can think of a couple things. I know for uh, way back in the early days, we did, um, Sierra Nevada did some, you know, homegrown barley in Chico, California. We ended up malting that for their first, their first release of their, uh, their in-house beer where they grew the hops and barley all on their own property. And then for us, I think the thing that kind of pushed us out in the forefront, at least in the Washington state area was Pike Brewing did a all Washington grown beer as well that used obviously Washington hops for primarily from the Yakima region and then uh, our barley. So that was kind of, you know, kind of two groundbreaking things that happened for us to kind of get us uh, out in the conversation and talked about in the brewing circles. Cause you know, I think, uh, and Brent can attest to this too. I, I think barley, while you know, obviously a very important and critical ingredient, isn't typically talked about in the same way as maybe hops and to even lesser degree yeast is talked about. But I think that conversation is a growing one and something that is going to be amplified over the next you know five to ten years. I'd say, Brent. Yeah, a- absolutely. You you know, I was just telling, I was chatting with one of our customers uh over the weekend you, you know and and i i still feel like even with with 10 years under our belt that there's a a tremendous opportunity for education out out there you know it, it's there's the value chain piece which, which you know flips the switch for a lot of uh local food uh supporters but you know then, then we have this this that we have this really interesting flavor piece that that gets a lot of people excited as well, and I think you know the rise of, or, of craft loggers that I think most of us have been cheering for 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 many moons is is finally here, and it's an op- it's an excellent opportunity for the craft monsters across the country to kind of showcase um, what can be done with with different varieties and different equipment. I mean, I think that's really. To me, that that's what gets me excited about the craft malt uh, industry is all of those differentiating factors. You guys are right. I remember 10, 12 years ago in New York, um, it, you know, things like single hot beers were, or, or, you know, wet hot beers or fresh hot beers were, were what was most interesting. And and I think if there were state state beers, yeah, the malt was kind of thrown in. Um, but we we know like we've we've covered the definitely in the Northeast and through like Valley Malt in Massachusetts, we've covered for, you know, for 10 years, just the, the rise of, of craft malt in the Northeast. But for you guys, um, let's start with Vince. Vince, like how important, when did you realize this was going to be very important to you as a brewer? Cause I, I think it's very exciting that, that you're using the Riverbend malt at Dissolver. I, I think it stemmed from, 
my love for mixed culture. Like there, it's really crazy that you can make, everybody can kind of make the same beer, but your individual cultures can vary. And then like you can taste a Degard beer or you can taste a Jester King beer kind of blindfolded and know like, oh, okay, that's got that specific flavor. Um, and then working with Riverbend, I was like, oh man, you know, some of these beers that we're making have a really cool wheat profile. And if you like sub it out or something like that, like it, w- it was made more apparent that the rye that they were using had a very specific flavor. And then that opened up my eyes to, oh man, rye is such a rye alone. Like just even that as a grain is a ridiculously huge baseline for what you can play with. And then how the maltster treats it uh, changes as well as where it's from or the specific type of rye and then where that's grown and how it was treated by the farmer. And then that expanded into base malt. And we started messing around with all the different base malts that they had. And then as Riverbend has grown and offered more things like a light Munich and a dark Munich, uh, they were doing a a dark Munich oat malt for a while. That was super (laughs) rad. So they, it's a, it's a love for local. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a love yeah. for local and an appreciation for like, you can do so much more with the base malt if you're willing to do more things with it and there's totally a market for it. And it, if it's local, it's even better. You know what I mean? Vince, right now, what, what's a beer that you have that would help me understand, uh, the malt? Uh, so all of our, all of our lagers, it's, uh, base pills from Riverbend and, if you like lined them up all side by side, like I think we've got an Italian Pilsner, a German style, like pale Pilsner, uh, a coffee pills. I mean, that's a little harder because I pummeled it with coffee. But if you line up like most of our lagers side by side, I think we have an oat lager on and that's even two types of oats from Riverbend. But it's got this underlying character that's not driven by the yeast. It's not driven by the hops. It has an underlying malt presence that like just jumps out and makes itself known. And if you drink them all side by side, that's the coolest thing is that like, I think I can approach any of our lagers and know that it's ours with a blank can um, because of how we're using that malt. So I wouldn't say one specific one. I guess if I was to say that the oat lager that we made with Riverbend, it's called Sense of Touch. Um the oats provided this really cool dextrin character to the mouthfeel uh, while still finishing it, you know, right around to Play-Doh. Um, so it's super dry, super crisp, but it has this really cool, big, fluffy oat mouthfeel. And the oats that uh, Riverbend uses are extremely flavorful. Um, so we were able to achieve like the best of both worlds, right? Like that big IPA oomph, but still that dry lager character. Brent, what kind of feedback do you give your brewers? You know, it, it's a it's a funny conversation, and it, it's um, a, a lot of times I I honestly steer folks away from plugging us directly into an existing flagship beer um, because I I know that what we're gonna our malt is going to to change it. Now that's normally i mean obviously i'm biased i i think it's going to change for the better maybe but what i don't want to do is have that be their first experience of to like different in a potentially bad way that disrupts a sales cycle 
you know, what we want to kind of do is begin a conversation with, you know, we usually do a hot steep uh, method where we're making a malt tea, where we're introducing the products in the proper concentration that they're going to get in the brew house and kind of uh, open up a conversation from that hot steep that says, you know, what flavors are you getting? What style do you think this would work in? And then we sort of work backwards rather than from a sort of plug and play model. And I think that those are the most effective first shots that we've taken is when we when we can sort of flip the the normal paradigm of, okay, well, that's a 2SRM malt, so that goes in this style of beer. Well, let's drop back and make sure that, you, you know, these flavors are what you actually want in that style and then kind of go build a beer around the malt instead of plug the malt into an existing recipe. Yeah, that's great. That's very, that's a culinary approach, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, uh, just over to Eric. So Eric, you guys up there in, in Sky Gadget Valley, um, give us a little bit of the local color, like some of the breweries that are there and, and some of the farmers that, that you're working with. Yeah. So uh, I la- last time I looked, we have about 14 breweries in, in the county itself. Um, Washington's got Jeez, I don't, I don't even know what the number is. Uh, Five million? It's something like that. It's a big number uh, <laughs> in Washington. We have a really, you know, prolific brewing community out here. Um, you know, Bellingham is a city just to the north of us, and I think, you know, for a town of sixty thousand people, I think it's got, uh, I think it's up to seventeen breweries now. So um, it's a really cool community that. The valley of the Skagit Valley is just a, it's a crazy river valley. It's incredibly beautiful. It's protected as farmland for a lot of it. And, you know, we're working with farming families that have been there for generations. And I think that's a, you know, a wonderful testament to um, not only our story, but to their story that we can, uh, you know, intertwine them and, and talk about it. They're very open about uh, hanging out with us and meeting people. They love the fact that, you know, they're, basically one handshake away from seeing somebody that takes it and puts it into a spirit or puts it into a beer that they can enjoy. They, they really enjoy that, um, that facet of it. So the three primary farmers we use are, I've already spoke about the Knutson family. Their primary uh, crop is uh, fresh to table potatoes. And then we have another family called the Rusins and they're primarily tulip farmers. And then um, lastly, but not least, is Dave Hedlund, and he does all kinds of different stuff, and he's our primary organic and salmon-safe farmer, and his his family's kind of thing is uh, just direct to, you know, direct to table. Um, They have a little farm stand in front of their place and and sell a lot of fresh fruits, veggies, and all kinds of stuff uh, just direct to the consumer, so... Uh, very three very different approaches as far as like how the families manage their land but they're very unified in their belief that they need to protect the Skagit Valley and they want to promote it as you know ardently as they can I mean they're huge proponents of what we do and you know um, it's just a really great partnership you know where I feel like we're in a unique uh, area because we have the bread lab up the street, which is primarily focused on breeding, not only uh, barley varieties, but wheat varieties. And they also work with the farmers to do test plots and, you know, grow seed and get things going. So um, it's kind of a unique 
position for us where we get to we like to joke that we get the malt weird shit and that's primarily because the bread lug grows stuff <laughs> and then they're like hey can you throw this in a machine and see if it'll malt and uh most of the times it does so um we like doing that stuff i think exploration is a big part of what we do and i think that is you know a good story for a lot of the brewers out there it sounds like um the brewery that works with Riverbend, you know, I think they're along that same path. And um, that's primarily who our partners are, or people who are out there trying to push the limits of what they think flavor and beer can be. And uh, it's it's a fun and exciting aspect to, to beer brewing, for sure. And, and Eric, can you give a shout out to uh, one of the breweries near you, the Garden Path Ferment Crew? Yeah, Garden Path is down the road. Ron Extract and Amber uh, moved into the area a few years back. Um, they do primarily farmhouse and wild beers, and they love harvesting stuff from all over the valley and throwing it into into barrels and seeing what comes out. So uh, Ron's got a long history uh, uh, in that realm coming from Jester King back in the day. Um, another big partner with us is Farmstrong Brewing, uh, down the road in Mount Vernon, um, their biggest seller is actually a lager that they call, uh, you know, Skagit Pilsner. We also work a lot with Terramar, who is their brew stillery, which I don't know if that's really. I think they made that word up, but I think it works <laughs> well. Um, they're a, they're a, a still and a brew house, so um, they worked with us on this project, and they did two smash beers with the two different barley varietals, and then they took some of the the wort and ran that through the still. So um, in a couple years, we'll get to try out that exploration as well. So we're looking forward to that. But yeah, we have a lot of different brewery partners around, but you know, primarily I think what binds us is people that are looking to a you know shop local and close close their loop and also the people that are really uh, interested in exploring barley varietals wow well hey that's a great first half we're going to take a short break we'll be back in a few minutes on beer sessions radio hey this is hannah hrn's program manager you may have noticed that we have a whole new look We also launched a new website that's going to make your listening easier and more enjoyable than ever before. HRN is the original food podcast network. And as we enter a new chapter in our 12-year history, I want to ask you to invest in HRN for the long haul. If you rely on this show to fuel your food media diet, become a monthly sustaining member today. Our members keep the voice of America's food movement alive and kicking. Your donations support this podcast along with 40 other shows on Heritage Radio Network. Your contribution helps give HRN the security we need to stay on the airwaves throughout the pandemic, and your continued support is allowing us to reopen our studio. Plus, we like to give our regular members special treatment. So sign up to become a monthly donor and get access to our secret menu. We've gathered together exclusive discounts and offers from some of your favorite food and beverage brands. So you get to enjoy insider pricing on goods that will ship right to your door. Join our community of monthly donors and special deals will come your way throughout the summer. So can you make a gift of five or $10 a month? 
It'll show me and our whole team at HRN how much this podcast and food radio in general means to you. Become a monthly sustaining member today at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Hey, hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. Check us out on our new website, heritageradionetwork.org. Become a member and support us at Heritage Radio Network. So uh, Jesse Boussard of uh, the Craft Monsters Guild, thanks so much for for bringing these guests together. Um, Tell us about the exciting news. So February, what's happening in Portland, Maine? Oh, yes. Our annual craft malt conference is coming to Portland, Maine uh, in February on the 18th and 19th. And we're really excited to go to Portland. I know it'll be a little chilly, but uh, it's going to be fun. We're going to be doing tours of Allagash Brewing and Blue Ox Malt House and the University of Southern Maine's Quality Control Collaboratory. Um, we also have just, we're working on, uh, getting a great lineup of speakers, uh, at the moment. And, um, but yeah, I would love to have people come to that. Yeah. We're in the Northeast. I, we would love to co-host a, a tasting or something up there. So we'll have some fun, but on that, on that note, like the, we've had a couple shows, uh, talking about the craft monsters guild. Um, I know there's a, a, a craft malt label that you guys have. You tell us about mm-hmm. that and tell us about, is there any way for breweries to put that label on their their cans as well? Sure thing. So the label that you're talking about is the Craft Malt Certified Seal. Um, this is a program that the Guild started back in September of 2019, and it is... Basically a a logo, yes, that you can put on a can, put on a bottle of whiskey um, that basically signifies you're sourcing your ingredients locally. You're, you know, working with craft maltsters uh, and it's it's a way for um, brewers and distillers really to, you know, showcase that aspect of their business to the the beer drinker or the or the uh, spirits drinker. And um, to to. Sign up for the program. It's pretty easy. Uh, you become a member of the Craft Monster Skill to brew your distillery member. Um, it's about $150 annually. And um, then there's a licensing agreement we have you sign just because it's a trademarked logo owned by our organization. Um, and then you can... We send you the digital files. We send you a tasting room sign, and you know we work with the um, participating breweries and distilleries to promote their products and um, promote their use of craft malt. Wow, um, that's the, great! The great and and you know a great thing I just want to point out is that both of the malt houses on this call today are big drivers of the craft malt seal program. We have a lot of breweries in Washington State and in. Um, North Carolina, including Dissolver, uh, who's on the call today, um, that are craft malt certified. So um, we actually have a, a map of all the craft malt certified seal participants across the country on our website. You can actually go to and um, see where they're at. Wow. You know, when um, I think in 2014, we got to know Andrew from Valley Malt and we helped put together an event in New York City where about 20 northeastern breweries made an attempt to make a, a batch of beer w- with uh valley malt malt and for most of them they'd never done that 
Um, and then just five, you know, five years later, two years ago in 2019, we did we did a version of it again, New York City Brewers Choice in New York, a slow grains edition. And I couldn't believe just in five years we put the call out um, from Burial all the way up to Allagash. I couldn't believe how many different mm-hmm. breweries were regularly using local malt. Um, is is that the right timeline? Is it, it really happened that fast, like five years? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Craft Mall is really new still. You know, I I know that Riverbend's been around for almost 10 years, but 10 years is a blip in the timeline of beer in the, you know, in the RF in our society. So um, Craft Mall is still really new and brewers are still learning how to use it. Um, But I, I think that, you know, those brewers that are out there pushing the envelope are definitely seeing Craft Mall as a way to differentiate their products. Um, and also, you know, connect back to agriculture, make that connection for the consumers. Um, and, and also, as we've talked about, you know, give a sense of place. You know, people love businesses that are supporting their local community and, and brewers that you are using craft malt are doing just that. Yeah. Hey, um, I don't know if this who, who wants to answer this question. It's more about varieties of barley. Uh, how do different varieties of barley get selected for use or propagation? Um, I, I can take that one. Uh, so, you know, to build on, on the, the bread labs work. So the bread lab does a lot of, uh, which is what makes them special is they, they really zero in on flavor and baking characteristics. Um, and, and that's, that's over and above what a typical variety trial program uh, typically does. So a, a variety trial program, like let's say one at NC State or Virginia Tech, they're taking germplasm from around the world and they'll actually do a very controlled cross of two different varieties. And, and then they will begin selecting for the desired traits inside of a large greenhouse. And then the next step is to go into the field and they'll continue that hand-pick selection um, over the course of eight to 10 years. And so that, that kind of gives you a flavor for the amount of effort that goes into these varieties. And uh, so Virginia Tech and NC State now are just, just now beginning to release some of the material that they began tinkering with in 2010 and 2011. So it's controlled breeding, it's controlled crosses and then selection processes that drive uh, ultimately where they arrive as an elite line status. So you might have 200 offspring uh, from this one cross and then, you know, 10 years later, you've whittled it down to four and then maybe only one, only one or two hit the, uh, hit the, um, you, you get to actually commercial release. Eric, let me ask you at Skagit Valley, I, I saw there was a mention of the Fritz Barley story that it was rejected one time. Yeah, I don't know exactly why it was rejected, but it was. And we found that it grew quite well in our region. And so we continued to use it. We still use it to this day. It was known as NZ 151. Um, that's a lot of stuff to say. So the name was changed to Fritz by um uh the breeder i believe but yeah just to echo what brent was saying um yeah it's a long cycle to go from the the cross to you know 
full malt production. Yeah, it's you know t- eight to ten years in that process, so it, it takes a long time to to get things turned around. And you know, just as uh, and secondarily to that is that you know the the growing process is like you know we're we're planting two two years out, uh, planting those plantings out. So we got to know what we're doing three years down the road to, so that we can have the the grains that we need to malt. Um, you know, for those next years coming up. So hopefully nothing gets messed up, like heat domes and things like that, that have a large effect on <laughs> on crops out there in the field. So what's better for, what's better for you out there, rain or no rain? Uh, I think it depends on the, the cycle of where the, where the barley is in its growing cycle. Um, we typically don't have a lot of rain, which sounds weird to be in Western Washington. Say we don't have a lot of rain during this period of time. Um, if we do get a late uh, summer rain, it can have a negative effect uh, on the barley. Uh, we don't have that issue this year. Like we had some extreme temperatures out West, um, but the early responses back from the farmers is that the crops are fine um, and we should have a, have a decent harvest this year. So we feel pretty fortunate. Uh, we don't normally get a hundred degrees out here. Like, I mean, let's face it 75 is like really really hot for people in the northwest so um to get 100 is pretty insane um but we 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 dodged a bullet this year i think so it just happened at a decent time when the barley wasn't too mature yeah hey brent you had mentioned uh some of the other regions in your region like you mentioned um some virginia growers uh chesapeake bay um how did how many Give us a sense of those little regions that, that you have farmers in and how how that the barley might be different. Well, it, we're still we're still kind of figuring that out. You, you know, really our our, our multi-state approach is is driven really for, for some of the things you, you just touched on there on the Eric did on the on the climate side of things. You know, we're hedging our bets because of all of the things that can go wrong uh, right before harvest. So, you know, we're typically, you know, our fields are not irrigated, so we're left up to the whims of Mother Nature. And so we might get a late season freeze at our higher elevation sites here in Western North Carolina, or we might get an early uh, hurricane or tropical storm event that would knock the crop down in coastal Virginia. So we're kind of watching all of these different climatic variables and and working within them so that we have the highest odds of getting a good quality crop out of the out of the ground um you know we're working with three two row barleys primarily um we're only growing a couple of those in multiple sites so um i have limited opportunity uh, so far to like truly explore like terroir you know does calypso taste the variety calypso does it taste different grown in uh the cumberland plateau or does or you know in western north carolina like can we actually tell a difference we know we can tell a difference in the flavor profile between um violetta which is another two row we use and calypso so we we work with those to highlight we develop products that highlight what those varieties bring to the table and I, I think we would be remiss if we didn't um, 
let Vince have the the stage to discuss uh, the flavor profiles that he got out of Talisman and how he put um, this uh, beautiful uh, Dortmunder together that he made with uh, with the Talisman malt. Oh man, I've literally been waiting. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I mean, just to speak to Brent's point, I mean, if if you make that commitment to being local, it's the benefit is that you get access to all of these local malts and you can work directly with your maltster. Like I can call up Brent and be like, Hey man, we really like this Vienna that we did, but we're looking for X, Y, Z different character. You know, what would you recommend? But you're limited to the palette selection that, that is their offerings. So uh, if you want to explore outside of that, the opportunity to jump on malt from Skagit Valley that was then malted or grain from Skagit Valley that was then malted by Riverbend is a rare opportunity. And so we just jumped all over it. Um, we knew exactly what we would get from their Pilsner. And so the goal was like, Oh, okay, well, you know, at a baseline, we'll do a lager, we'll put, you know, put them all on the forefront and then let people kind of distinguish the differences between what we're typically doing and the initial thought was like, oh, we'll just rebrew a lager that we do all the time, either uh, our Czech Pils or our American Pilsner. And then we did a steep with the malt, and it was immediately like, oh, man, we have been waiting for this. It uh, was significantly more floral. Uh, the malt presence in and of itself was punchier is the best way to put it. Like, um, Eric, did you say that it's got – Golden Promise Heritage? Uh, no, Maris Otter is in its parentage line. There's some other things in there that, but that's the primary one that we highlight with that malt. So, which I think bread and biscuits when I think of uh, of Maris Otter and no, I, and I think this is great. I mean, I haven't heard you speak about this barley variety, so I'm entranced by what you're saying. It's been really popular with our customers up here so much so that we've almost sold out of it. And that harvest that just came in is basically going to save us. So that's great. <laughs> but that's, that's really cool feedback to hear. Yeah, we got, so like normally with the riverbend stuff, like I said, it's very floral, delicate. Um, and it's, it can be understated or it can be overstated. And that's entirely uh, recipe dependent and sure. you know what, how you're treating it. But the first thing that we noticed was like, oh, damn, uh, it was like a, <laughs> I guess, like an English version of what we're typically using, like just bigger, punchier, more malt forward. Uh, and so we that was exactly what we did. We were like, oh, man, we've been waiting to figure out how we can make a Dortmunder. And this just like immediately screamed Dortmunder just That's in terms sweet. of I mean, if you're talking about it from like a, a base style, right, it's like a Pilsner but maltier and like a Hellas, but not as punchy in terms of hops, like more subdued and subtle. Okay. And then you want it to be like extremely high minerality. Like you're licking a piece of granite. Um, and so this just like jumped right out. It had this almost like it, it dropped off kind of sharp in a way that is extremely pleasant. Like the malt was there and then it stepped back on your palate and it almost had like a, a subtle minerality to it. So, yeah, it just seemed like it was a total no-brainer. Like the entire brew team was like, yeah, we should definitely yeah. brew a Dortmunder. With Vince, that. quick, what, what, what's the name of that beer? That beer was uh, VR Pizza Boy. Uh, it, I don't know if it was 
you know, the fact that everyone loves Dortmunder <laughs> or, uh, or the fact that I had pizza on it or, you know, we like to think that it was because of this cool malt swap that we did. But we got an insane amount of positive feedback from locals and regulars were just going crazy for it. And then as soon as it hit the market, it was like gone. It's crazy. Wow. Yeah, um, it, it was, you know, it was like this really nice you know, sort of sweet biscuit cookie thing. And, and it did, you know, where our sort of our normal malt sort of tails off and this nice little sort of green tea finish. Like it was just like this little, little like sweet biscuit cookie thing. I can't really explain it, but it was, it, it had just a lot going on. And, it, you know, we were, it was a challenge to malt because, or surprising results, I should say, you know, as maltsters, because we were like, all right, we're just going to do this just like our normal English style uh, Southern Select base malt. And, you know, the color came out lighter and it didn't take up moisture the same way. And so, like, there were definitely differences in the malt house where we were like, hmm, that's interesting. You know, so it was it was definitely, you know, if I do one of these again, I definitely want to do more of a data download with with the folks that we're collaborating with. It, it was it was interesting because I, I would love to take another crack at it just to see like what we can get if we were a little bit darker in that finished, uh, you know, uh, SRM level. So because this did, it was just a touch above like Pilsner malt color wise, but brought uh, just a very surprising flavor profile to it. It so, was fun to do. So before you get make it malt, it, it's like you're working with this whole every time you get a new barley in, it's a new ingredient, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. So it, it, it takes up water differently and that triggers the germination process. And so if the germination process takes off, you know, rapidly or sluggishly, that ultimately impacts what that finished product is going to taste like. So, it, you know, if I were to really give this the full English treatment on the next uh attempt you know we would probably spend a little bit more time in the steep a little bit more time in the germ and make sure we were a little bit more modified going into kiln um ahead of things but you know th this is the fun stuff i always tell people that that's the special sauce of, of <laughs> craft malt is you know you can hand me i can give you my variety and my recipes but if you got different equipment, you're going to end up with a different product. Yeah, absolutely. I think Will, our maltster, would love to hear you say that because he said that to me so many times. I can't even, yeah. I can't even tell you. Um, <laughs> you know, Brent, we do, we do do a like an, an more English style kiln with that talisman. We call it True British Ale. I'll have to send you guys out a little bag just so you can do a crunch and and steep it. And nice. See, see what it comes out yeah. like. Uh, Brent, call me when you do that. Yes. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, there's, that, there's, that's an interest. That's interesting feedback. Uh, I, I can't wait to talk to Will tomorrow about what you just said, Brent, because that's yeah. th those are the same comments I've heard him make. Because you know we use um, well up to eight different barley varietals at our place, Ooh. and you know every one is its unique little special delicate flower when it comes yep. to the process. And so, you know, Fritz doesn't malt the same way Talisman does versus Pilot versus, you know, um, uh, Copeland. You know, we use all kinds of different stuff. So I know Will's got his hands full every time he's, you know, got a different barley varietal in one of the machines and uh, trying to hit, you know, trying to hit specs. It's 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 a challenge for sure. And, and then you get the new crop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Or even well, that, that's what specialty for a while. Specialty crops are supposed to be like that, aren't they? Hey Vince, yeah. so you as a brewer, back to this, you know, talk about flavors of the malt. You mentioned minerality, but at when did you get a sense that this malt would work the way it did? It does. How do you as a brewer use the hot steep, or did you not know until you actually made the beer what would really come out of it? Uh, no. So, uh, because we've worked with Riverbend, Brent is a big proponent of the hot steep and with working so closely with them for as long as I have, it's, you get to learn. It's like crushing hops, right? Like when you crush hops, you know, you're looking for specific character and then how you're using it. And then knowing that like, Oh, okay, cool. Well, I kind of smelled grapefruit mid palate. So if I dry hop a little on the warmer side, maybe I can pull that out versus something else. It's the kind of the same thing as like, if you know, if you can understand what that hot steep is going to translate into, you can understand then how to manipulate that malt and get it, get that flavor to either push to the forefront or pull to the back. Um, so as soon as we, uh, yeah, did the steep, I mean, the first thing was that it was like a, like a pale English Pilsner is the best way to put it. Like very biscuity, a little bit floral, and it dropped off in a sharp but pleasant way um, versus Riverbends, which is very, very delicate and floral and green tea uh, is the best way to put it. Wow. This is pretty cool, guys. Um, Brent, anything you want to say? You're now the the chair of the Craft Marshals Guild. Yes, uh, ha- have been for a couple of years and actually was one of the, the co-founders back in 2013. So it, this is a, it, it's been a, a great ride. You know, I, I feel like we, we've still got a lot of, uh, of minds to open and get, uh, you know, really explore these flavors and, and go at this from a, a culinary perspective. You, you know, I, I think there's real opportunity with, with the lagers. I mean, we also play a role in hazy IPAs if done right. You know, the, the oats and wheat that we malt and uh, our cohorts around the nation, you know, we can play a role in, in every beer style. And so I, I think there's room at the table and, and a real, you know, if you're supporting farmers markets and, and local farm to table restaurants, you know, you should be looking for craft malt on, on your labels of your craft beer. That's great. Uh, I fully support that. Just like real quick, I I didn't think that, you know, obviously local malt is going to play a big role in styles where the malt is more at the forefront, like a lager or a baseline pub ale or something of that nature. Um, A Kolsch is another good example. But we initially, when we opened, we were using a little bit of every malt. And we would notice in the IPAs that there was a specific heft, body, dextrin character, and there was a a difference in uh, essentially permanent haze or haze suspension. And so we actually like preferred the Riverbend stuff before making the switch uh, conversation with Brent that happened like right at the beginning of the pandemic was like, why don't you just make the the switch? Um, We actually preferred almost all of our beer because the malt can contribute something different. So like even the base malt, like Brent was saying, the, the oats and the wheat totally contribute a hundred percent, but even something as simple as the base malt, there's a noticeable switch. It's pretty cool. I'm down with it. So that's a great argument for craft malt, isn't it? A hundred percent. Yeah. Eric, um, you, you were a big part of this project. 
Um, seems like most of the malt you're you're selling on the West Coast. Um, just give us a the, so you you're selling beyond Western Washington. Just tell us a couple of the areas where where you're regularly selling the malt. Sure. First, I just want to say Vince almost made me cry with his statement. So that's really nice. <laughs> Thanks, Vince. Aww. <laughs> I love you, man. Um, we've, we've expanded. We started in just Western Washington. Now we cover Washington state. We dip our toes a little bit into Idaho, but to be fair, we could do a much better job in Idaho than we currently are. Um, we also sell in Vancouver, British Columbia. Um, that's been a bit of the challenge, uh, since the pandemic, they're actually going to finally open the border here next month. So that'll be great. We've been sending trucks across, but it's hard to make sales calls when you can't see people as we all have found out over the last year. Uh, Oregon is also a key market for us. We have a rep down there that covers all of Oregon. And then a little over a year ago, about a year and a half ago, we went down to San Diego to kind of test the waters down there. Um, and then we've had some pretty good success. You know, There's obviously a huge craft beer market there, not a lot of craft malt in the market. Um, and we've made some good headway. So we're pretty pleased with the results down there. And, you know, I think it's just eye opening to a lot of people to, you know, to echo Vince's, uh, uh, statement is that, you know, I think once people start seeing the effects of having craft mall in their beers, you know, I think it's, it's eye opening. I mean, we do some smash beers here at our malt house, um, that are all designed to showcase the barley varietals with very low hop presence. Um, and we usually have four to five different barley varietals and kilns uh, in our refrigerator. And you can sit down and do a tasting side by side of different barleys and kilns uh, from our book. And I can't tell you how many times people's eyes popped out of their head because they can't believe that out of the four Pilsner malts they just tried, that the barley varietal imparts that much difference in the flavor between the four different beers. So um, I think it's just a huge huge uh, conversation to be had there's some people that are really driving that conversation not only from the craft malt side but from the brewing and distilling community um and i think that's it's something that just i can't wait to talk more about and i can't wait for you know people to really open their eyes at craft malt and regional barley varietals and terroir all play a really significant role in finished products i think it's uh it's it's really it's really cool quite frankly. Well, you guys have been a great, great guest. And thank you, Jesse, for bringing this together. And Brent, Eric, and Vince for joining me here on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host. Thanks to our engineer, Armin Spengen, and assistant producer, Caroline Fox. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Thanks so much, guys. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food Radio is supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family 
by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.